Friends, hear the word of the Lord. And this is referring to John the Baptist here in this first verse. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the anointed. And he brought Simon to Jesus, and he looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was a joy last week to be able to welcome Dan and Catherine and to hear some of their words to us after spending four years in the Republic of South Africa. And we will continue to reflect on those words Um, And I'm not quite sure how we'll do that yet. We're still sort of thinking about that. But what I want to say is that we haven't lost that idea. We haven't lost that idea, and we'll keep continuing to bring it forward. And as we move our way into 2020, uh, I would like to continue to frame all of our discussion and all of our work sort of within the context of this idea of blessing. And we're going to continue to talk more and more about what that means. But as we think about what it means particularly to be a community of faith, um, one of the key identity markers of who we are is that we are called to be a blessing for the world. And part of our job is to continue to figure out what that looks like, how it is that we function as a blessing 
for the world. Uh, and so we'll continue wrestling with sort of some of those questions. And the question that's before us today is how do we create that space of blessing by making space for others? How do we create that space of blessing by making space for others? So I just want to put that on your plate and invite you to think alongside of me uh, as we consider that question today. And as we look at our text, what I want to suggest is that our text doesn't actually start in John chapter 1, although that's where we are in the text today, but it might help us to back up a little bit and to actually look at the Gospel of Luke, because the story that we have today is directly connected to the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, who remembers the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth? Most of us, right? We always get a chance to review it every year in the Christmas pageant. It's one of the great things about the Christmas pageant. If there's sort of sidelines of the Christmas story that you've forgotten about, you get a chance to review them. So Zachariah and Elizabeth are, of course, the parents of John the Baptist. And in the very, very early part of the Gospel of Luke, we have a chance to hear about their story. Now, their story is a little bit complicated because how it starts is that Zechariah is a priest. Um, he goes into the space of where he's about to help with all of his priestly work, and he's visited by an angel. He doesn't believe the angel, and then he has to remain silenced, right? The angel gives him this declaration that his wife is going to be pregnant. Now, the text helps us to know that his wife had been moving on in years and that chances are, in fact, she wouldn't turn up pregnant, but this was the message of the angel and Zachariah says, no way, right? And then he has to deal with something very unusual in the first century. As a man, as a priest, as a person of power in his small little village, but still, he has to be what? Silence, right? And that silence of Zechariah, I want to say, was formational in the work of John the Baptist. Now, keep in mind, John the Baptist isn't on the scene yet. He's still sort of hidden in the life and in the body of Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth. But this formative change that happened in the family that John the Baptist grew up in. This formative change was that his father had to be silent for his mother to be able to grow in power. And so that is the context that John the Baptist comes into the world in. That's the context that he comes into the world in. Now, I don't think that Zechariah or Elizabeth ever forgot this whole story of being silenced. And I think that it changed them. Because when you begin to go through a practice like that, that's countercultural, that forces you to silence one so that another can come to the table in a very full way, you begin to recognize an awareness and a power 
and a noticing about what it means to bring other people to the table. And you begin to find your identity in giving away your privilege rather than in holding on to it for yourself. And this is exactly the context that John the Baptist was born into. This is what happened to Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I think it's the reason why they were able to raise a son like John the Baptist, who in the context of what we read today, in fact, turns up and then gives all of his power away. He gives all of his power away. And so now with that as our backdrop for the text today, I want us to turn and look a little bit closer at what it is that we have going on today. Because I want us to notice, first of all, that we have people coming from Jerusalem, the sort of highlight and and sort of hub of power within the Palestinian first century, right? This is where a lot of people who have been trained, they have been educated, think of it as we have researchers from Harvard coming to see what we're up to, okay? It's a big deal. You're thinking, okay, this is a lot of, like, there's a lot of energy here. We've got to figure out how to get in line with what these folks are talking about, or at least we have to figure out how to bend their ear so that they can see what we're doing. So we've got the folks from Jerusalem coming, the sort of researchers from Harvard, right? The priests and the Levites. And friends, they are not coming to see Jesus. So if we notice that within our text today, they're actually not turning up at the Jordan to see Jesus. That's not why they go there. They're going to see John the Baptist. And in fact, they need to know who John the Baptist is because they sort of beg him, tell us who you are because we've got to report. If you just read a little bit earlier in the text than the part that we read today, you can see that the Pharisees and the, the Levites are asking him, tell us who you are. we got to know this because we have to make a report back to the people who sent us. Right? So they come because they want to know not who Jesus is, but who John the Baptist is. And given this platform of privilege and opportunity, I want us to think about what he could have done. He easily could have taken up all of the air in the room, talking about his own work and his own accomplishments. But John instead has a very clear understanding of who he is. And so he takes this grand opportunity not to take the space for himself, but to figure out how to make space for others. Right? He's got the researchers of Harvard there. And all of a sudden, instead of saying, here's what I'm doing, he instead takes that opportunity to broaden the table and to open it up and to say, here's what I see the Spirit doing in the world. And he does that by doing a few things. He reminds the Levites and the priests of their own history So he's not making a big break here, right? He's not sort of changing the direction of the whole story. He's reminding them of what they already know. He talks about the prophet Isaiah, okay? This would be the equivalent of, you are my sunshine. 
Like, we all know you are my sunshine, right? If somebody talks about that song, it's not like somebody's like, oh, I don't know that song, unless they weren't raised here. Like, we know that. So when you're talking about Isaiah, you're talking about a very common thread that people can hold on to. So he talks about the common thread that is within their history, and he uses that common thread to remind them that the history that they're connected to gives a glimpse of a much bigger story that is going to unfold. So when these researchers from Harvard come, he says, remember your early research. Okay? It's not just about this one idea. It's about this big idea. And that provides the space. It begins to broaden the table. It begins to open it up. And that's why John the Baptist says, I proclaimed the one who, was, who, was a, who did not come after me. He was ahead of me because he was before me. It's very complicated, right? And for folks that maybe are getting a little bit excited in this room and need to take a little bit of a walk around, that is totally okay, right? That's part of who we are as a community. Sometimes we need to engage our bodies when we hear these words too. That's part of who we are. So as John does this with the prophet Isaiah, what he is literally doing with these uh, priests and Levites that come to see him is that he is building space. He begins to build the runway that Jesus will walk down. And by invoking this history and carving out this broad interpretation of the prophets, he ties the baptism into, of Jesus into something that was set in motion from the beginning of time. Now, I just want to pause here for a second because this is really important, but it gets a little bit of lost in the sentence that I just said. So John bore witness to this event of Jesus' baptism, right? He sees the dove coming down. He hears the voice. He hears the voice who says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. He hears all of those things, right? He didn't make any of that stuff up. That's something that he actually bore witness to. It's something that he saw on the streets, right? The, the word that we have in Greek is bear witness, which actually means that you could sort of give a testimony to that in court, right? So it's saying, this actually happened. But what John does is he provides a connection of that event to the history of their faith. So he says this wasn't just an event that happened sort of ad hoc, but this is actually connected to everything that you have seen building for the last three to 4,000 years. And in that, what he does is an event that runs the risk of becoming an isolated event in and of itself, he connects to the context of history. And when you're dealing with the context of history, then you have a big platform that you can invite lots of people to the table in. So John does not create this event that happens with Jesus. He doesn't create the voice. He doesn't create the spirit. But he gives all of it context and connection and then this is what begins to make space for the table. That broad context and connection to the events of history. 
that these folks have practiced and known and been familiar with for so long. So, John broadens the table. But then the second thing that he does, and this is really hard to do, and in fact, we forget that John did this. It's often overlooked. He makes space at the table, but then he also realizes that it's going to require something of him personally. He, re- he recognizes that it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a little bit. And this is what John does when he gives one of his disciples away. Now, we often forget that, but the text helps us point it out. When John sees Jesus coming and he says, here's the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. By the way, that would have been really familiar language for John. Don't forget, his dad was a priest. So this is a whole idea that he is very familiar with. He looks at Jesus and he connects this person to the bigger story of history. And then one of his own disciples says, "Uh, I think I'm going to go check this guy out. And John loses. He doesn't just lose one of his disciples. He loses the disciple that goes to gather his brother. And who's his brother? Peter. So, you know, we can think about this whole trajectory of Jesus and his disciples and the role of Peter and the role of Peter after the resurrection of Jesus. But what we cannot lose is that that disciple turned up. Because John the Baptist was willing to give things away. Right? Hurts. Hurts a little bit. So John builds space, he carves the runway, and then he offers that first plane to make its way down the tracks. And I highlight this story today Because I want us to remember that this story starts with a man who had his dad silenced so that his mom could speak. And then it becomes a man who silences his own power so that he can give his disciple away. And then it becomes a disciple who follows Jesus in and through the resurrection and into the foundation of the church. And as we come to this season in our own country where we once again begin to examine our origin stories, right? Because that's what we do. We start with Martin Luther King Day and then we move into Black History Month, right? And then we move into Women's History Month then we begin to set that platform for Pride Sunday, right? It's that opportunity, whether we like it or not, whether we're on board or not, we have an opportunity to revisit our origin stories. And we can see them from lots of different perspectives. We can disagree with them. We can feel like some of them are, ah, I'm not happy with this one, or E, this one is pushing me in the wrong direction. All those things we can feel, we can feel, I feel them too. But we have to wrestle with them. 
Because they give us the invitation once again, over and over and over again to say, who's not at the table? Who's not at the table? Who's not at the table? Some of you I know might be going to see the movie Just Mercy. I haven't seen it yet, but we've done plenty of reading around that book, and hopefully you'll have a chance to read it in this next year. It's a fantastic read. I'm sure the movie is wonderful, too. I've heard really good things about it. Uh, But in a country where, once again, we have to revisit some of the statistics around our origin story, in a country where where in some states, 34% of our people have lost the right to vote, in a country where, not in Washington state, but in other states, it is legal to try a 13-year-old as an adult. 13-year-old as an adult. In a country where one out of every nine people who are executed on death row, one person is exonerated after death. That's one in nine, right? So any engineers in the room, you can let me know if you think that that would be a good enough statistic to send something into uh, project development. In a country where one-third of black and brown people live in our prison system, and in a country where, for constitutional lawyers, what I'll put before you is where the legal solution to racism is to revisit the 13th Amendment, which gets rid of slavery and indentured servitude, but doesn't, in fact, reckon, reckon with the dignity and humanity in each living person. This is not yet a country where everyone is at the table. Anybody read yet The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates? Yeah. It's a great read. And Melinda does a lot of this work, too, with the eye towards how this not being brought to the table has impacted women in particular, not just women within our own country, but women around the world. And one of her continual arguments throughout the book is that the more people you bring to the table, the better it is for everyone. The better that it is for everyone. Now in Seattle, we tend to think that everything is okay. Everything's fine because we're in the Pacific Northwest. And I experience a little bit of those feelings myself. But I offer you this. I read an article this week in the Seattle Times about a woman from West Seattle uh, who was recently hired by the New York Yankees to become a hitting coach. Anybody else read that article? It's a great article. Um, She's been practicing baseball and softball her whole life, was recently hired on by the Yankees. I was super excited, beginning having all sorts of random conversations with people about this. And in one of my conversations, uh, an individual who I was talking to said, why? And I thought, there it is. There it is. Now, there's no reason to dwell on that response other than to recognize that as human beings, and this is actually one of the reasons why we keep coming back to prayers of confession, that as human beings, our predictable behavior is to live in the most efficient way possible that causes the least amount of suffering and the most amount of pleasure. That's who we are that's in our DNA. It's what we do. It's what we do. It's what I do. 
But the message of John the Baptist is that we do not have to live that way. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's mandatory. We have a choice. We can opt for something different. We can opt for continual blessing. We can opt to bring more people to the table. And John the Baptist illustrates for us, not just in his pointing to Jesus, but in his ability to give his own resources away, shows us that the world is not a zero-sum game and or gain, but in fact, the world exists in such a way that if there is more love for you, there is more love for me. So this whole algorithm that sees everything as zero-sum is an algorithm from a different way of life that doesn't exist as long as Jesus the Messiah is on the scene. I mean, maybe if he wasn't there, we'd have a different conversation. But the conversation that we know because of the presence of this man who from the beginning of time chooses the world in love and does not vary or detour from that choice, that changes everything. There is no zero-sum game. As love begins to expand and grow and bring more people to the table, The experience for you becomes the experience for me. And instead of the pie shrinking, we see that it just continues to grow. Friends, the world needs people who can give it away. The church needs people who can give it away. And this is the model that John gives us because he believes that after me comes a man who is before me in all things because he was before me from the beginning of the world. This is him, the Lamb of God, and if that is true, then there is room at the table. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, open us up. It is hard to put this model into practice. It is countercultural and it causes us pain. We can't always do it. But help us, and by the power of your Spirit, give us grace to do it when we can. And help us to gain our strength from your very Spirit that continues to do this work in the world. In your name we pray. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.